We pray that you will all be challenged and convicted today, that we would all be encouraged and where we need encouragement. And we just pray that you will be done. In Christ's name, amen. One of my uh, favorite passages of Scripture um, is Psalm chapter 1. I came about this psalm when I was 17 years old. Um, I had gone through a tough period in my life where stuff around me was kind of falling apart. and um, I read this in preparation for my high school graduation, and I, I hadn't really noticed it before in my reading of Scripture. And um, It spoke to, to me as... as as something that's life-giving, something that um, is a strong foundation on which to uh, build your life. And um, prior to that time, I, in my whole life, leading up to that time, I grew up in a church, um, and I, I had my ups and downs following the Lord, but up until that point, I hadn't really grown in my faith. And so in my senior year of high school is when I really started to grow and when God started to really change my heart. And so this psalm was near to me and dear to me. It's something I come back to periodically and I, I rediscover and it, it challenges me again and convicts me again. Um, we're going we're gonna to open by reading out of the ESV uh, translation. If you have a Bible in front of you, you can follow along. It's Psalm chapter 1. I'm also going to use another translation uh, by Robert Alter, who is uh, a, Jew, uh, a Hebrew uh, literary critic and a Hebrew um, scholar. And he uh, gives a great translation of Psalm Psalm 1 that really brings out the essence of what Hebrew poetry and scripture is. Some of the structure he uses might be a little more stunted in our English language, but it really shows uh, the beauty of the Hebrew poetry and it really brings to life the text in a good way. So I'll be using both texts. You can follow along in the ESV as I preach, but I will also be reading from Robert Alter's translation. So let's read Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I want to open by just um, giving a brief introduction into Hebrew poetry, because the Psalms is, is written in that uh, structure, in that, in that way. And so it's something that might be kind of foreign to us in our, our thinking of poetry. In the English language, we often think of poetry as being in meter or in rhyme. In the Hebrew poetry, uh, uh, we see that this, we see that poetry is in parallelism. Um, what parallelism is? It's a term that uh, scholars and, and liter- literary critics have given to to uh, the structure of the poetry. And, and what it is basically is a repetition. Um, there's this there's this repetition between two lines or three lines. Either the line repeats itself, it builds upon itself, or there's a big contrast. And within this parallelism between the two lines or between the two verses or even three sometimes, um, there's this correspondence, there's this relationship between the two lines. There can be relationships between words in, in corresponding lines, and there can be relationships between the lines themselves, the whole entire thing that it's saying. And so, uh, as, as we read this, I'm going to read it again, I'm going to read from Alter's translation again. Um, as we read this, I want you to really look at the, 
the parallelism in the text. And as we go through the text and, and you're looking at the text and you see how it builds upon itself, you're really going to see how the text comes to life when, when you think of it in those terms and, and how the flow of the text is. We'll talk about it more as we move along. Happy the man who has not walked in the wicked's counsel, nor in the way of offenders has stood, nor in the session of scoffers has sat. But the Lord's teaching is his desire, and his teaching he murmurs day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by streams of water, that bears its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in all that he does he prospers. Not so the wicked, but like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand up in judgment, nor offenders in the, in the band of the righteous. For the Lord embraces the way of the righteous, and the way of the wicked is lost. So this is the first psalm in the book of Psalms. And it really sets a paradigm um, for proper way that we see worship in Scripture. It sets the paradigm for the proper way of worship throughout history, really, since God created the world. We realize that there's a relationship at the core of this, that um, this psalm is based around a relationship between his, God's people and himself. It's, it's based specifically with the nation of Israel around this covenant relationship and with us as believers in the new, in the new covenant. It's, it's based around that covenant relationship with God. So we're going to see three things as we move through this text. We're going to see the contrast between godly and ungodly counsel. We're going to see a contrast between godly and ungodly prosperity. And we're going to see a contrast between judgments of the godly and ungodly. So let's jump into verse 1. The first thing we see is that it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now this blessedness, uh, Robert Alter says, this happiness is this joy that comes, this, this way of life, this, this joy that fills all of life. This is the person who is close to God. This is the person who does not walk in the way of the wicked. This comes from a close union and a close personal relationship with God. That's where the happiness comes from. This is, this is a similar phrase to the one we see in Matthew chapter 5 when we think about the Beatitudes, like, blessed is the meek, they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's similar to this relationship that we see, this blessing that we get from relationship with God. And so we're going to see how that takes place and how that builds as we move along. But the first thing we see right off the bat, after the psalmist says, blessed is the man, he gives negatives. He says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. This, this, uh, this parallelism that I talked about, we see this in verse 1. This is a correspondence between three lines that build upon itself. In the first line, we see the, the verb walk. In the second line, we see the verb stand. And in the third line, we see the verb sit. There is this progression that goes along. First, you're walking along with the wicked. You're giving an ear to their counsel and you're listening to what they say. Then you're standing with them and you're partaking in whatever actions they are committing. You're, you're living with them in, in their actions and you're committing maybe wicked deeds. And then the third thing is that you're sitting with them in the assembly, in their council. Um, it's, it's a state of being, a state of, of your whole life is, is um, encompassed in this. And so, what we see here is that when you don't 
when you're not in the law of the Lord, when you're not um, obeying His commandments, you're going to be getting your advice from somewhere else, right? Um, you're either going to be getting your advice from God or from something else. Now, sometimes the, the advice and the counsel that comes from the world around us, the wisdom that comes from the world, there is wise advice out there. But oftentimes, there is also unwise advice. And so, this, this, what this uh, beginning is talking about, it's, when it says, uh, when, it, when it talks about the wicked, it's talking about the ungodly. This is setting a precedence for the view that we see in Scripture between the ungodly and the godly. There's no um, gray area between the two. There's a black and white contrast. You're either wicked or you're godly. We're going to see a little bit more how that is. Um, but when, when we're, we're talking about the wicked, the counsel of the wicked, we're talking about the counsel of the ungodly, those who are not believers, those who do not belong to God's family. So as I said, um, we see a degradation uh, degrading into this um, lifestyle where you're encompassed in this sin. It goes from just giving your ear into committing sin and then into just scoffing, sitting in the seat where you're, where you're no longer even you know, committing the actions, but you're looking at, at those who are following the Lord, those who belong to the Lord, and you're just scoffing at that. And so we see that the relationship of God is at the core of this, right? The happier, blessed individual is painted in a black and white contrast, like I said, to the ungodly person. Here we see that this, the psalmist sets a contrast between the counsel or lifestyle of the godless with the lifestyle that is soaked in the word. It says that the Lord's teaching is the desire of the happy or the blessed person. It says, but the Lord's teaching is his desire, in contrast to those who seek the counsel of the wicked. In his teaching, he murmurs day and night. The Lord's teaching is his desire. And he's teaching, he murmurs day and night. When I was in school, I was in my first year at Moody Bible Institute. And we had a, a fall freshman retreat. I remember that there was this one, the speaker for the week was a pe- local pastor from Spokane, Washington. And um, I remember one of his messages was very controversial and it caused a lot of discussion within the student body and just among everyone. Uh, one, of th- one of the things he said was that he basically gave a, it gave a, a sermon on the topic of Bible idolatry. This might not be a term that we've heard, um, that many of us have heard. And it's a term that he created as far as I know. What, this basi- what he basically meant was that you know, we can uphold the Bible to such a standard and such a lofty position that we worship it as an idol and we don't worship Jesus. Um, his intention was to challenge the students to pursue the relationship with Jesus and not to let theological and biblical discussions um, become an idol to them above Jesus. Now, while I think that his intentions were pure, I think that uh, he was a little mistaken in, in what it means to uphold the Bible, and what it means to hold it to such a high standing. You see, he did not want the Bible students to become like the Pharisees. He did not want us to become like Pharisees. We see in the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, that Jesus has this back-and-forth relationship where he calls the Pharisees hypocrites. Um, where he condemns them for the way they use the law and the way they restrict the people in their teaching. They were more concerned with following the law to the T than they were with with the relationship with God. They were more concerned with the rules and the regulations than they were with the individuals that they were supposed to be shepherding, having a relationship with God that was healthy. And so they missed the heart of the law. 
And the heart of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's the purpose of the law, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And so they missed this um, because they, they were demanding all these actions and, and there was no relationship there. there was that, that love wasn't there. Um, since creation, God has desired to have a covenant relationship with his people. We see with Adam and Eve in the garden, there was that relationship that was strong before sin entered the world. Then after sin, that was broken. And eventually, God came to a man named Abraham and called him. And his purpose was to bring redemption to all the nations, not just the nation of Israel, but to all the nations through Abraham, through his line. He was going to bring the Messiah to be Savior of the world. And the reason for that was so that he could have that relationship with us. The reason for saving us was so he could have that relationship with us that was broken. Um, and so we see that there's this love aspect to the relationship, a love and grace aspect to that. And as opposed to the, to the Pharisees, to the legalists, who, who will say to follow every aspect of the law and will be strict and harsh about it. You can be on the other side. There's, I feel like in my generation and maybe in our generation, one of the major things that I always hear is love and grace and forgiveness and all those positive things. Um, I believe this helps to explain why there is some backlash in our generation and especially in our, in our generation against the Bible as being regarded too highly, because oftentimes we view the law, we view the Old Testament, we view the instructions that we see in it, we view it in a negative light because we think that it's, it's not the gospel. We think that it's, it's bringing restrictions on us and it's, it's making demands of us that require our efforts, whereas the gospel is about grace and love. Um, love is the word of the day. And so sometimes we even emphasize grace apart from the law. We emphasize grace over all else, and then, and then we leave those things behind. We leave the instruction behind. We leave God's direction and his counsel behind. However, when we come to a passage like this in the Psalms, what it says is that the, that the godly person, the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It says his delight is on the law of the Lord. This is what he desires. This is what he delights in. It seems to say that the law of the Lord is his delight, not Jesus, not God. And so how could that be so? Are we to say that Jesus is only supposed to be our desire? Are we to delight in him only? What, is, what does this mean for us? I would say that if we view the law or scripture or the rules in it in a much lower regard, we're doing the exact same thing that the Pharisees do. If we lower what Scripture says, the direction and instruction and the laws that are in Scripture, we're doing the exact same things as the Pharisees do. Only we're doing it on the flip side. We're disregarding what the law is for. It's a misunderstanding. Rather than saying we have to perform these legalistic actions, we might be saying that grace abounds and love abounds, and we don't have to follow any of the rules. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter for us because we have that forgiveness through Christ's death and, and sacrifice for us. While that may be true that we had the love and forgiveness and grace from Christ, it's not true that we don't have to follow these rules. It's not, it's not true that these rules don't apply to us anymore. The psalm shows us that our relationship to God is, or it shows us what our relationship to God is and the role that Scripture plays in that relationship. So Scripture has an integral part, plays an integral part in our relationship with God. This psalm shows what that is to us. The primary way, primary way we get to hear from God and know who he is, and get to know him, and grow in a relationship with him, is through scripture. 
2 Timothy 3.16-17 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It is God's spoken word to us through his people. That's what Scripture is. It is God-breathed, and it's profitable for teaching, and it's profitable for correction and training and righteousness. Um, I thought that we weren't supposed to live in our own righteousness anymore. I thought that, you know, it wasn't upon us that we can't do anything, that it's only the gospel that can save us. But it says it's profitable for righteousness. That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So this is the reason that we delight in the law of the word. This is the reason that we desire, our desire should be for its teaching. Like the psalm says, but the Lord's teaching is his desire. And his teaching, he murmurs day and night. Our desire should be that because it is the word of God spoken to us. It builds that relationship with, with him, between us and him. If we don't have that, if we're not listening to his voice, how can we grow in relationship with him? You know, just by prayer, um, prayer alone, we can talk to him and, and, and there's a relationship that happens there. The Holy Spirit moves in us. But if we don't know what he has to say to us, how can we grow? How can we learn? It is not a suffocating blanket. The word of God and the law is not a suffocating blanket. It is a wellspring of life. It is how we hear from our Savior and grow in a relationship with him. As we continue, um, we see that the, man, the, the, the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, we're talking about someone who desires this and, and, and desires to be in the law of the Lord to the, to the point that he meditates day and night. And what this meditation means, uh, what it says, it says his teaching, he murmurs day and night. This is a meditation. This is, this is not just reading God's word and passing through it and moving on with your life. Um, this picture that's pointing to someone murmuring day and night is like someone reciting the word of God to themselves. It paints a picture that someone is thinking about it and talking about it. Like, like the crazy person walking down the street talking to himself. Or the person who laughs to himself in their own head like I do all the time. You know, this is the person who's thinking about something inside day and night. Murmuring it to themselves under their breath. You see, when we come to Scripture, we don't want to just take it at face value and move on and not dig deep into it. You know, we want to study it and we want to absorb it, absorb it and let it affect and change our lives. We want to hear God's voice from it and spend time thinking about it. It means med meditating means um, reading it more than briefly and saying, huh, that's nice, you know, this is a nice thought, and then moving on. It means letting it soak into us. When I was in, in school, and I'm sure many of you have experienced this, like when you're in school and you're trying to memorize stuff for your classes, you go over it and over it and over it again and again and again. Especially when you're doing something like science equations or you're memorizing vocabulary words for some sort of course. When I was taking Greek, it's not a language that we speak at all. It's all written on paper. And so in order to get it down in your mind so that you're able to, to like, do well on exams and translate and, and know the vocabulary and the way to translate verbs and all this other stuff, you have to continually be studying and thinking about it and going over it in your mind. When I would go for a Greek quiz or for an exam, I remember like walking up and 
the rest of my classmates would be outside of the room like 15, 20 minutes early. For any other class, it's never like that. But for like a class like, like that, everyone was there ahead of time. And they all had their flashcards out. They're all going through a big stack of flashcards, whispering under the breath the vocabulary words to themselves over and over again. So they can memorize it and they can know it. And they can understand it when they see it on an exam and know like, just all the parsing and all the crazy stuff that you have to know. It's just, that can take up a lot of time. And so it takes a lot to become familiar and comfortable with it. To be saturated to, by it to the point where it affects your life on a daily basis, not only when you're reading the Word, but as you're going about the rest of your routine, night and day. So that's, that, that's, uh, that's where the blessed man finds himself, is in that meditation and that saturation of the Word of God, not in the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly. Next we see this metaphor with the psalmist's gifts. It says, He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all he does he prospers. Now this metaphor is common in Scripture. If you've read some Scripture, you may have noticed that we see metaphors for streams of water, water being re- related to life and, and living and, and flourishing. And we, we see examples of trees and vines, the, the metaphor used for us being planted in God's Word or in, in God Himself, uh, in the vine. Jesus is the vine, right? We see these metaphors between plants and prosperity and fruit. And so that's what the picture is that's painted here. In, in the Middle East, in this, in this climate, in this arid region, water was not common everywhere. There was wells that had to be dug. There were rivers and streams, and, and irrigation was based off of that. You know, people didn't have garden hoses in the middle of the desert. You know, they just didn't have any water unless they dug a well. So we see here is that you know, the, the, pros, the, the prosperous person, the one who is spending the time in the Word of God, is like a tree planted by streams of water. There's this deep root and this firm foundation that they're planted in because they have the access to that life and that nourishing and that flourishing. Um, They bear fruit in their season. Without water, there is no life and there is no fruit. It says, He is like a a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. You know, when you're connected to the life source, there is a prosperity that comes. At first glance, and it may, and it may appear uh, that your life should be great and perfect if you have that firm rooting. Right? It may appear when we say that you're going to be prosperous and bear fruit that our life is going to be all great if we're spending time in the Word of God and meditating on it. Right? Everything's going to work out. Your job's going to be good. Your friendships and relationships are going to be great. Your family's going to be great. Your health is going to be great. Everything will be great. Um, but this, this idea of flourishing and prosperity is not a materialistic connection. It does not have a materialistic connection. There's no indication that this has to do with possessions and comfort and, and even our comfort in life. What we see is that this is a, sp- a spiritual f- fulfillment and happiness, both in this life and in the next. The prosperity and the fruit that is born is spiritual fulfillment and happiness. It's not connected to the earthly riches. Those may come and those may go. But when you're soaked and saturating yourself and meditating on the Word of God, the spiritual fulfillment and happiness that comes is what it is, is what, is what our prosperity is.
So when you're deeply rooted in the Word of God, when chaos enters your life, your joy is rooted in the Lord. Your joy isn't rooted in the circumstances that surround you. When we have a biblical lens through which to interpret life, we are given much more peace and hope in the midst of adverse circumstances. And even more so, when our relationship with God through Jesus Christ is flourishing, then there is truly nothing that can knock us off course. Because He is our strength and He is our foundation. And even beyond getting by and coping with this life, there's this idea of prosperity. Prosper, like, it's, it's positive. It's not just like, you're going to be okay through life. You're, going to, you're not going to suffer too much. You know, your spiritual well-being is going to be good despite all your circumstances. No, it says that there's going to be prosperity and you'll be flourished. Um, Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. In Romans 8, 28 through 30, it says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What this is saying is that there's a spiritual prosperity, prosperity and, um, and fruit that is born in the life of the believer when you're planted in the Word of God. There's, there's something that can happen through you and in you. Um, there's these promises in Scripture that, you know, no matter what may happen, everything works out for the good of those who love God, for those who belong to him, those who are his children. Um, when, we, when we may wonder if God is using us or moving us or moving through us, maybe the question we have to answer is whether or not we are available or ready for him to move. So if we're wondering like why something isn't happening and like why we might feel a certain way, maybe we need to self-examine ourselves and see if we're being available to him. Are we equipping ourselves with the tools and resources that are so readily available in Scripture? And are we availing ourselves of what he could be teaching us through his word? Are we just ignoring that and then worried and and stressed out when something happens and we don't know what to do, we don't know what to think? If we can answer yes to these questions, that we are availing ourselves to this and that that we're spending time in the word of God and we're meditating on it, um, and yet we still feel like we're standing and that God's not moving through us or bearing fruit in us, we have to remember that he works and bears fruit in his appropriate timing and in the proper season of our lives. It is not always when we expect it or how we expect it. It says, it says that um, the tree is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, right? And its leaf does not wither and all that it does he prospers. And it's season on this earth that God has appointed for us, but also, ultimately, when we are in glorification with him. That's when we see that full fulfillment. So we see this contrast in verse 4. It says, the wicked are not so. So they're not prosperous. They're not bearing fruit. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. There's this contrast between the godly and the wicked. Um, the flourishing and producing fruit contrasts to the chaff that the wind blows away. So there's life and there's nourishment and there's, and there's the, the creating of life and fruit and prosperity and then there's just worthlessness, right? It says, 
The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Now, we may have heard this before, but you know, chaff, chaff came from the stomping of grain in the Old Testament and during that time, and even now in some uh, more rural areas where they still use cattle. And, um, what, what they would do is on the threshing floor, they would spread the grain, and then the, the, the oxen would go around in a circle and trample all the grain and, and separate the husk um, from the seed. And what would happen is they would take a fork and they would toss the grain into the air with all the chaff, with all the loose, um, worthless stuff. And the, the wind would blow it away. And then the grain would fall back on the floor and then they would gather that up and they would use that to make bread and all, everything else that they used it for. And so when the wind blows away the tra- chaff, it's worthless. It has no purpose. There's no value to it. It disappears. There's no lasting value. And so the psalmist explain, is explaining here that there's no lasting fruit from the life of the unbeliever. The person who is not following God, the person who does not love him, who belongs to him, there is no lasting fruit from the life of the unbeliever. Romans chapter 3 says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths is full, or their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of the peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul in Romans here is talking about the depravity of the sinner. He's painting a picture that's very bleak. What he's essentially saying in this passage, and and, and if you read more of the passage, you'll see that. He's not just talking about these really bad people. He's talking about everybody, everybody who is not found in Christ. We're talking about anyone who has sinned ever. That's a picture that's painted. And there are some pretty tough, extreme things in here, like their throat is an open grave. You know, the venom of asps is under their lips, like snake poison is under their lips. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It paints a very dark and bleak picture of the person who's not in Christ. And the reason he does so is because we see in Scripture that you know, you're either for Christ or you're against him. There's this no black and white. You know, you're either on his side or you're not. And so, um, in, and so we, we see that it's, it's this person who, who even their good works are like worthless um, chaff that the wind blows away. There is nothing beyond this present life experience to which the unbeliever has to look forward to. Anything that you do in this life is like the chaff that the wind will blow away. It's going to mean nothing after you're gone. You may leave a legacy on this earth, but even that will eventually disappear and, and blow away and go away. So any worthless deed or even any good deed, if you're not found in Christ, you're like the chaff that the wind blows away. And so we see a sort of conclusion here. In verse 5, in verse 5 it says this, Therefore the wicked will not stand up in judgment, nor offenders in the band of the righteous. We get to the end of the psalm, and ultimately there's this consequence that is eternal. Um, just like we saw at the beginning of the psalm, where um, we talk about the, the one who walks within the counsel of the wicked, or stands, um, stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, you know, 
There's a state of being. Well, in verse 5 we get there, we see that this person who's, who's standing in that state and sitting in that state, they cannot stand in the judgment. There's nothing on which to stand. They have no legs to stand upon. There's no firm rooting. John the Baptist, um, okay, let me backtrack a little bit. When, we, when we're talking about Jesus as being a loving, merciful, and gracious Savior who forgives sin, we oftentimes miss the righteousness and justice of God. Um, I do want to make this clear. I, this is something that Tim does all the time that I absolutely love. Um, he says, Jesus is a loving, merciful, gracious Savior whose forgiveness we cannot outsin. You cannot outsin God's forgiveness. I want to make that clear. You cannot outsin His grace or forgiveness. But what is clear is that He is also a justice and righteous God. And for those who do not know Him, those who do not belong to Him, um, there is judgment. John the Baptist says this about Jesus Christ. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We see that happen in the life of the believer. His winnowing fork is in his hand. Remember when I talked about the winnowing fork with the grain. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So we see that Jesus is both Savior, but he is also judge. That's something that is clear. Jesus even says that all judgment has given, been given unto me by the Father. Um, so Jesus has that role. And so we see that some, someone who did not walk, stand, or sit in the council, way, or session of the wicked offender or scoffer, that person does not know God and does not stand up in the judgment. And we see, like, we see that, the sinners, that the sinners don't stand in the congregation of the righteous. The ungodly person, the person who does not know Christ at the judgment, they're not going to be in the assembly of the righteous. Just like the righteous avoided their assembly and resisted that and, and, and soaked themselves in the word of God. So um, the sinner does not stand in that righteous assembly at the judgment. And so this, this paints both, both a happy and and blessed picture of what life can be like, and it also paints a very bleak and dark picture. Um, but we see the gospel in this. Um, that's at the core of this, and, and we, we know even greater just, just with knowing what Christ did. You know, when this psalm was written, they didn't know what Christ did, but God worked through them, through the prophets, to write these things for us and, and for all of Israel before they even knew the full ramifications of it. But when we get to the end in verse 6, we see that it's all about that relationship with God, all that, about that relationship we have with Jesus. In the conclusion, it says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord embraces the way of the righteous, and the way of the wicked is lost. So there's this relationship that's in the core. It's either a relationship that exists or does not exist. When it says that the Lord embraces the way of the righteous, it's talking about this intimate, loving relationship that exists. Um, in the Old Testament, this verb for embrace is often used to, in, to uh, indicate sexual relationship between a husband and wife. It uh, indicates the intimate, close relationship, the closest, most intimate, knowing relationship you can have. It's often translated knows, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And so what we see here is that there's this deep spiritual relationship and connection that goes further than anything we can imagine or think about. 
um, that exists with, between God and his people. So between God and his people, this relationship is very deep and intimate. It's an embracing, loving, intimate relationship in which he watches over every step that you take. He watches over every aspect of your life, and he cares for you. But in contrast, the way of the wicked will perish. Um, hell is a separation from the living and flourishing relationship we can have with God. Right? And we don't like to talk about hell too much, right? Because it's just, we're talking about something that has no hope when, when that is. You know, when, when, when people eventually go to hell, there is no hope anymore. That is the end for them. You know, they, there is no hope of redemption after that point. They've already rejected Christ. So we don't like to talk about that. But we see that, that that's the end for those who don't walk or delight in the law of the Lord. More specifically, who don't believe the gospel and what Christ says in his law about the gospel. And so, um, rather than that embrace that you receive from Christ in a close, intimate relationship, you experience the wrath of God. You know, we talk about the wrath of God. Um, he is both judge and he is both savior, you know? You have both. You don't just have one or the other. Um, so we see when man follows his own course apart from God, the result is that separation, that, that breaking of relationship, that non-existent relationship. The path which they have already started down, walking in this life, leads towards that destruction um, eventually. So all this ordering of Life, according to the teaching of God, you know, soaking yourself and meditating the word of God daily and, and avoiding the counsel of the wicked, it's void and, and means nothing except for the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. You know, Because otherwise it's upon us and, and upon our actions. And we already saw that. Just one sin, just one faulty step, we lose all of that. We lose all of the claim we can have and make upon ourselves. The Apostle Paul speaks of the law as being a guide to show us our need for a Savior because we realize we can't keep it on our own. We realize that we fall short. And so, this is why James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all. Like you're guilty for everything that's in it. So it's this deep, weighty thing. However, in the grace of Christ, in his salvation, that condemnation is put on him and is taken off of us. The weight and the burden is lifted and it's no longer rests on us. And so that's the good news for us. We receive, receive the, we don't only, you know, receive uh, forgiveness from breaking the law and, and, the, and the death that we deserve, that Christ took in our place, but we also receive the ability to now live a life that is the best life God intended for us. The law was never meant to be a burden. It was meant to be a direction for us to live in the best way that God intended for us to be a guideline for our life so that we could be close in relationship to God, not so that we uh, would be trying to be perfect. And so we see the fulfillment of that in Christ. Christ fulfilled the law. He obeyed the whole law. He fulfilled all of us so that we can have that close, close relationship with God. And it still means something for us because it gives us direction in life. It gives us the best way that we can live. God gave us the law because he loves us. He gave us rules to live by so that not so that we would feel stifled and constricted from having any sort of enjoyment, like Tim said a couple of weeks ago, but he gave us guidelines and directions because he loves us and knows what is best for us. It's in our best interest. Um, and so my hope and prayer for us is that, first, that we know Christ, that we have that relationship with him, that you know, we have given our life to him and accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior and, 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 and believed in his 
death and resurrection for our sins. The second, my, my hope for us is that we, um, that we soak ourselves in, in, in the Word of God, that we spend time daily reading it and, and memorizing it and meditating upon it because what it does is it gives us the best life possible. It's not the best life in the sense that you're going to have the most money or the most possessions. Um, not, not the way that the world may think it, but it's the best life, life that God wants for us. Not the best life that we might necessarily want for us, ourselves and our own selfish desires. Um, so yeah, when we come, we're going to take communion now. Um, and when we come to the Lord's table, take the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we're remembering that death and sacrifice that God uh, that, that Christ took for us upon the cross. We're realizing that there was a penalty that had to be paid. We're, re- we're realizing that there is sin and there is death, but we also realize that Christ has overcome that on our behalf, and so we celebrate that when we take the Lord's Supper. So if you're a believer, I encourage you as we play this next song, as we sing, that you come up and you take communion and you rejoice in the salvation that you have. Um, if you're not a believer, this, this is a good time to do work with God, to to pray, maybe come up to me afterwards, to some of our elders, Dave, Wayne, and we can talk to you and, uh, and, and help you. But yeah, this is a time um, for believers to celebrate the, the life and the resurrection we have in Christ. Um, after we take communion, we're going to take offering, and if you're a visitor or not a regular attender, I, I would just encourage you to